Uh, I'd like to begin by reading scripture. We're starting a new series today in Romans. And so I'll be reading actually Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, and then invite you to pray with me and uh, we'll, we'll begin this series together. Let's pray. Father, uh, thank you that we can gather here. Now we commit this time to you. Give us ears to hear, hearts to respond to what your spirit is saying. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. This is Paul's word, Romans chapter 1, verse 16. I am not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes, the Jew first, also the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, even as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. One of the challenges that we face as a, as a teaching team here at Bethany, being six locations, six lead pastors, is making decisions about what to study together uh, because we all preach from the same text every Sunday. So in the summer, we have a retreat and we plan out the year and we brainstorm prayerfully what topics we should choose. And uh, because I'm the senior pastor, I get to make the final decision. And I want to let you know that I, I'm the one who pushed for us to do Romans. And so if you hate this series, blame me. Uh, and if you love it, you're welcome in advance. But uh, I want to tell you a little bit this morning, particularly as we introduce an entirely new series, why this is an important series. And it will be probably for reasons that you wouldn't anticipate. It's not because I think you need to learn the Roman road, what's called the Roman road, though you may learn the Roman road in the process. It's not because Romans is the clearest articulation of why Christ's resurrection matters, though it is that. And it's not because the book challenges many of our Christian assumptions, though it does that too. Here's why I chose the book of Romans. The central theme of the book of Romans is also the central theme of this moment in history, and the central theme of this moment is fragmentation. Our culture is more fragmented and divided now than it's ever been, and the church has mirrored the culture's movement toward fragmentation, and the fragmentation isn't just American, it's global. Uh, a recent book by Yuval Levin entitled The Fractured Republic really goes into a great deal of depth to articulate the challenge of the moment in which we find ourselves. And he begins with this observation that our politics and much of our cultural thinking is drenched in the kind of a nostalgia for the 50s and 60s. And not only on the part of conservatives, but on the part of liberals as well. This is what he writes, the left is nostalgic for the relative economic equality of that era, and the right is nostalgic for the relative cultural cohesion of that time, when we were seemingly more united on our view of sexuality and women and views of marriage and that kind of thing. So this post-war era, post-World War II, has kind of become this, this kind of golden age that we look back on longingly, and everybody does it, whether you're on the left or the right. And, and now, he says, uh, we've moved into an age of fragmentation, and that makes us long for that cohesion even more. And at one point in the book, he tries to articulate fragmentation by drawing a series of U-shaped graphs showing a pattern. For example, within politics, party polarization in Congress declined dramatically and steadily from 1910 to 1940, but has risen since. We're more polarized now than ever. The share of national income that went to the top 1% dropped dramatically from uh, 1925 to 1970, but is now on the rise again. 
And Americans who were born abroad, the, the percent, dropped steadily from 1910 to 1970. In 1970, only 4.7% of the American population were first-generation immigrants. Now it's above 15%. And so it's, that's, that's risen. And so we're more uh, culturally diverse and economically fragmented and politically fragmented than we've ever been. And then he spends a little bit of time talking about how the church mirrors that fragmentation. His last point that he makes in the book, articulating the problem before moving to solution, he says this, we're presently less committed to soul-forming institutions, choosing and preferring identity over community. That's a very important phrase that will frame much of our conversation, identity over community. In other words, he, this is what he says, to be in a community requires a commitment. Like if you're part of a congregation like this, it requires uh, actually knowing people, making eye contact, sharing life together, sharing a meal together, and watch this, differing on certain things, sometimes arguing, that's okay, but that's what it means to be part of a community. Having an identity is simply identifying from a distance with a certain people group or ideology, like I'm Jewish, or I'm an evangelical, or I'm a Republican, or <laughs> I'm a Seahawk fan, right? That's easy. Like it's easy to be part of a community, part of a, a, it's easy to have an identity, but it's harder to be part of a community. So merely having an identity doesn't weave people together. It actually fragments us. Because what happens is we gather in kind of these tribal sub-identity groups, that think like us, look like us, vote like us, think theologically like us. And the, the closer and tighter knit we become in those kind of fragmented tribes, the more threatened we are by people who look different than us, vote different than us, think different than us, even think theologically different than us. So we begin to throw stones at the people who are on the other side of the wall from us, right? And we don't throw stones literally in this age. We use Facebook <laughs> or, or Twitter or something, but we, we, th we throw stones. And so we have in our culture now, instead of communities, identity. That's why this phrase, identity politics, is so popular today. Identity politics. And we have within the church, identity theology, which means we're arguing based on identity. Neo-Calvinist versus Eastern Orthodox versus emergent. Open and affirming versus closed and denying. Egalitarian versus complementarian. Inerrant versus inspired. And in such a world, our identity becomes more important than our community. And as a result, we're fragmented and we function largely as individuals and spend our time fearing and vilifying and arguing with those who have a different identity. In other words, we're deeply divided. And here's why this matters. The last thing for which Jesus prayed in John chapter 17 before his execution on the cross was this. He said, Father, I pray for my disciples and those that come after my disciples. I pray that they may be, does anyone know what? One, even as you and I, Father, are one. I pray that they would know unity, and here's why. So that the world may believe. Because watch this, without unity, we've got nothing. And so, since we're not united, we've got nothing. And the church is dying in America. So I really have to address unity... Because without unity, there's no testimony. What's Romans got to do with that? Watch this. Paul's letter to the Romans. It's one of the longest and most significant things ever written by the man who was formerly known as Saul of Tarsus. 
He was a Jewish rabbi belonging to a group known as the Pharisees, and he was passionate and devout to the Torah of Moses and the traditions of Israel. And he saw Jesus and his followers as a threat. But then he had a radical encounter with the risen Jesus, who commissioned him as an apostle, like an official representative, to the world of non-Jewish people called Gentiles in the Bible. And so he started going by his Roman name, Paul, and he traveled all around the ancient Roman Empire, telling people about the risen King Jesus, and forming his followers then into these new communities called churches. And Paul would occasionally write letters to these new Jesus communities to help them foster their faith or answer questions. And the book of Romans is one of these. It was actually written quite late in his career. Now we know from the book of Acts that the church in Rome had existed for some time, that it was made up of Jewish and non-Jewish followers of Jesus. But at one point, the Roman emperor Claudius had expelled all of the Jewish people from Rome. And then about five years later, all of those Jews, including Jesus-following Jews, were allowed to return. And when they did, they found a church that had become very non-Jewish in custom and practice. And so this created lots of tension. So that by Paul's day, the Roman church was divided. People disagreed about how to follow Jesus. They were debating about whether non-Jewish Christians should celebrate the Sabbath or eat kosher or be circumcised. And so Paul wrote this letter to accomplish a few things. He wanted this divided church to become unified and for a practical purpose. He was hoping that the Roman church could become a staging ground for his mission to go even further west all the way to Spain. And so these circumstances are what motivated Paul to write out his fullest explanation of the gospel, the good news that he was announcing about Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Don't you love that uh, return of the Jews and the little fracture thing and the escalating volume of the conversation? It reminds me of my Facebook feed after a Supreme Court confirmation hearing. Same kind of thing. So um, we do live in a divided time. And Paul's words of the Romans, this first words, first chapter, represent three realities that are intended to unite us, even though all us in the room can find reasons to divide from one another. And that's what we'll be looking at. The good use, uh, number one, the good news is uniting, so let's embody it as such. Number two, our transformation is uniting, so let's be transformed. Number three, our sickness is uniting, so let's agree with God that we're part of the problem. We need all three of these things if we're to be woven together. And we begin with this, this first reality, the good news is uniting, let's embody it as such. We know from verse 13 of Romans 1 that Paul wanted to visit Rome, and the concluding statement as he muses on this desire is in verse 15 where he says uh, that he's eager to declare the gospel in Rome, and then he, rep he repeats this word gospel again in verse 16 in a key verse that frames the whole letter where he says in uh, verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel, right? So uh, this word gospel really literally means in the Greek language, good news. It's a Greek word evangelon from which we get the English word evangelism. And it wasn't used much in Greek, this word evangelon. Uh, but when it was used, by its context, it described one of two kinds of good news. The first kind is the kind of good news whereby you're hoping for something to happen. And then when it actually happens, you go, woohoo, that's good news. Uh, last night, I'm hoping the Huskies beat BYU. Good news, right? 35 to 7. Incredible. But I digress. So get back to the thing here. Because there's another way, there's another way that the news is received as good, and it's this word good news is used whenever the emperor spoke, and here's why. Because when the emperor spoke, what he said was law, 
And therefore, if you aligned your life with the emperor's declaration, all would go well with you. And conversely, unspoken, if you didn't align your life with the emperor's word, then you'd be punished somehow. So watch this. Sometimes you may not like the good news because it's hard to hear, but it's still good because it leads to life. Does that make sense? So it's it's everything you're hoping for, and it's also stuff that's hard to hear but is life-giving because it came from an authority. And that is, of course, the gospel. It's good news because it's everything we're hoping for. It's peace in a world of violence. It's hope in a world of despair. It's healing in a world of disease. It's justice in a world of oppression. And at times, it's also a word that we don't want to hear because all of us have darkness in our heart that needs correcting, and the good news exposes the darkness of the human heart. So in both ways, it's good news. Now, remember that the good news is not only very good, but the good news is vast. In other words, it's not just a ticket to heaven. It's not just a path of self-actualization. It's a promise that Christ, by virtue of his death and resurrection, is transforming everything in the universe. So that by the time you get to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11, the, the summing up of all things in Christ is kind of this... Uh, uh, articulation of where history is headed. Where, how does the story end? The story ends with everything in the universe shot through with the glory and beauty and majesty and healing power of God. In other words, everything reflects what God wanted when the story ends. We're not there yet, right? But, but the good news is, in this broken, fragmented, hateful, fearful, dark, corrupt world that's on display 24-7, In this world, history's headed in an entirely different direction, and you and I are invited together as a community to embody in our life together kind of a a preview of where history's heading. Does that make sense? Like we are the presence of the future, if I could say it that way. So we're called to be people of hope in the midst of despair, healing in the midst of disease, joy in the midst of sorrow, all of that, so that Christ can be seen in us. And that's very different than how the good news is often articulated. Often the good news is articulated as God hates your sin, so mad at the world, he's going to destroy the world and toss everything into endless fire of hell unless you admit that you're already a terrible person and have done terrible things and then God will cover you with Jesus cloth so that God won't actually see the terrible you but only the, only the Jesus cloth. And I'm here to say that's not, really the, that's not really exactly what Romans is saying. And so we need to understand what the good news means so that we can articulate the good news accurately and not just articulate it, but embody it. And one of the things that makes the good news very good is what Paul says here, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Remember uh, the, that word from the angels in Luke uh, chapter 2 when Jesus is born and the angels come as shepherds? Behold, I, I bring you good tidings, of great joy, which shall be for American evangelical Republicans. Uh, No, wait, that's not it. That's a different version of the Bible. What does the text say? Good news, great joy for all people, including Republicans and Democrats and rich and poor and black and white. The gospel is all-encompassing, do you see? So at the core of the message is this notion that Christ's resurrection has the power somehow to break down every dividing wall between every people group and unite all of us because the walls of division and hostility that have set people against each other are destroyed at the cross, somehow destroyed. 
And this is, this is core to the gospel, and it means for us as Bethany that we're called to make a visible community of people who look different, have different uh, net worth, different education levels, different color of skin, different voting records, different views on whether abortion is more important than gun control, even different views on ethical issues related to sexuality and marriage that are dividing the church today. We're called to be a group of people who are united solely by virtue of the one single fact that we share life in Christ. That's what we're called to be. And I'll just share with you that that's actually why I'm at Bethany and not somewhere else. I, I, uh, I grew up in kind of a, I'm gonna, I don't mean to be pejorative to Baptists here, but I grew up in a finger-wagging Baptist church. Do you understand what I mean by that? Like, is that a word picture for you? So, uh, all Baptists are not finger-wagging Baptists, but where I grew, I grew up with this kind of sense that if you're in this club, you're in, and if you're outside of this club, you're like, you're a heretic. So there's a, there's a big kind of wall around our community, and the finger was not being wagged ever at us necessarily, because we got our ticket punched by being baptized, and, you know, not drinking and wearing a tie and different things, but the, like the finger was wagged out. Then I went to Cal Poly study architecture, and I got involved in a student group that was made up of, you know, Catholics and Pentecostals and Presbyterians and even to my shock, Baptists, here we are all together, uh, and like the one thing that binds us together, the glue is, hey, we all love Jesus, right? Then I changed majors, came to Seattle, attended Seattle Pacific, and during my time there, especially early on, I was disillusioned by the amount of theological infighting that was occurring among the students. And I was like, man, this is not life-giving the way studying architecture was life-giving. Then I came to Bethany, and over the door was this thing, this saying, in essentials unity, in non-essentials liberty, in all things charity. And I walked in the door and I listened to the preaching and I kind of got involved in the community and I found out, you know what? That's how people are trying to live that out here. We're trying to be a community whose basis of fellowship is shared life in Christ, period. That's what we're trying to do. We don't do it perfectly, but that's our goal, you see. And, and that goal is reflected here in what Paul is articulating so when Paul says he's not ashamed of the gospel, it's because of this uniting power of the gospel. I'm going to say some of you presently are ashamed of the gospel, or you think you are. And the reason you're ashamed is because of the church's track record. You look at the present moment and sexual scandals and financial scandals. You look at the, the infighting over politics. You look at church history, and you see the church's record on slavery. Or you look at colonialism, or, or you look at environmental degradation, or you look at uh, uh, the Crusades, or you look at the lust for power, and you're like, I'm done with this. I'm saying to you, look, if you're disillusioned and you're ashamed, you're not ashamed of the gospel. You're ashamed of our misrepresentation of the gospel, and you should be ashamed of the misrepresentation of the gospel. Our calling, though, is not then in our being ashamed to simply wash our hands and walk away. Our calling, it is hot in here, to roll up our sleeves. Our calling is to roll up our sleeves and say, together we will embody the unity found in Christ alone. Amen? And that's it. That's why we exist as a church. So that's where we're at. We're called to be unashamed because of the, the reconciling power of the gospel. Our then, the second reality for Paul is this. Our transformation is uniting, so let's be transformed. 
In other words, he says here, look, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for what? Salvation. Power of God for salvation. And the funny thing is we think that we know what the word salvation means because we often think that salvation is escape from hell so that our destiny is no longer hell and now it's heaven. And the gospel may include that in a way, though we'll unpack that as well later on. But that's a tiny piece. Salvation is total. And total salvation means that we're moving continually for the rest of our lives. We're moving from wrong thinking to right thinking, from wrong living to right uh, living, from addiction to freedom, from division to unity, from hatred of enemies to love of enemies, from violence to peace, from not knowing our neighbors to loving our neighbors, and about a thousand other movements. We're always moving so that according to 2 Corinthians 3, verses 16 to 18, we are moving from glory to glory to glory, looking more and more and more and more like Christ. More love, more hope, more justice, more wisdom. That's the gospel. You can move. And we are called not just to embrace the reality that we can move, we're called to actually move, and that's why Paul wrote Romans. Because the transformation that we do together is uniting. If I'm being transformed, and my brother Tom here is being transformed, then we're both looking more and more and more and more over time like Jesus. Also, the hidden reality, though, in there is this. Until we're perfect, neither of us are looking fully like Jesus. And when Tom and I are not looking fully like Jesus, we're both at risk of one of the things that prevents unity more than anything else, and that's selective transformation. Let me explain what I mean by that. Okay, I'm being transformed, and I love Jesus. And now, there's something in Tom, and I see it, and it bugs me. It could be, it could be his voting record. It could be his spending record. It could be some theological nuance where we differ. It could be any number of things. But I, like, I can see his flaw, or at least perceived flaw, with 20-20 clarity. Meanwhile, because his flaw bothers me so much, I become blind to what? My own flaw. Does this sound familiar? Uh, remember what Jesus said in uh, Matthew chapter 7? He says, hey, and now I'm paraphrasing a bit. He says, hey, the judging that you guys are doing with one another, knock it off. Like when you're judging each other that way, it's tantamount to try to pull a speck out of your brother's eye while you have, and I love the imagery, the hyperbole, while you have a what? A log in your own eye. This is beautiful because, like, we live in the Northwest. <laughs> like, why would, you, why would you try and, you know, pull a seed out of Tom's eye when you have a fir tree in your eye? Can you picture that? <laughs> a fir tree impaling your eye. And then Jesus says, hey, what would be the logical thing to do? You got a fir tree in your eye. What's the first thing you should do? First, <laughs> pull out the fir tree. Then, perhaps, with a little healing, you'll be able to see what? The speck in your brother's eye and deal with it. We don't do that. Collectively as a culture, we don't do that. And if you don't believe me, just check your social media feed. We are shooting each other all the time. Theologically, politically, economically, racially, sexually, on every issue. And we see with perfect clarity why the other side is wrong and the subtext of that is why we're right why we alone have the moral high ground. I'm here to say that Paul is here to say, you alone don't have the moral high ground. 
So stop cherry-picking particular issues and elevating them, the things that you have to be good at, and say, those are the most important things. They're not. Jesus said that too in Matthew, where he critiqued the religious leaders of the day, when he said, you guys are big into tithing, so much so that you tithe your spices. But you, so you've elevated tithing and made it the be-all, the end-all, and meanwhile, you've neglected the weightier matters of justice and mercy. Do you know your neighbor's name? Have you ever had them into your house? Do you throw parties? Do you love people who are different than you? Are you crossing social divides? Is your sexuality under the Lordship of Christ? Not just your money, but your sexuality? Not just your sexuality, but your money? Like, in other words, the transformation that Jesus has for us is all-encompassing. And if we don't allow it to be all-encompassing, then we're, we're guilty of selective transformation, and Jesus never intended to selectively transform you, ever. It's not the gospel. Jesus intended to totally transform you. That's why he said in John 8, if you know the truth, the truth will what? Set you free. But then watch this. If the Son shall make you free, you shall be what? Free indeed. Not free 90%. Free completely. So... We're called then to this total uh, uh, submission to the revelation of God. But selective transformation prevents that from happening. And one of the, I'll give you an ironic illustration from this very text. Romans 1 has become a favorite text to talk about uh, same-sex marriage. Favorite text. People appeal to Romans 1. And they talk about... Uh, uh, the particular verses where men burn with lust for men and women for women in verse uh, 26 and 27 or so. And I'm just here to help you do a little Bible study just for a moment, right? And I'm going to say to you, when you're studying your Bible, you're always trying to ask this question. Now, what would the original readers have envisioned when they read a text? What would they, what would be in their mind at this particular moment? And for Romans 1, I can tell you what would be in their mind because what was a, what was a common uh, same-sex practice in the first century <clears throat> would be people of power using their power to uh, gain sexual access to young men. It happened in the Senate all the time, the Roman Senate. It was super common that that would happen, and everybody knew about it, and there was some stuff going on too with wealthy women and other women, and so there's, there's, this, there's this pedophilia going on that's a total abuse of power, and when Paul writes these words, what the original readers have evoked in their cultural lens is exactly that, not a committed couple. Now, I'm going to go on and say that's a whole different issue, and it's worth talking about, but not from this text. Because how ironic that we would use this text that's predicated on Paul's call to unity to elevate one particular sin and wag our finger and thus divide. No. Can I shout in here? No. <laughs> like, we need that discussion about same-sex marriage, but not here. Because this is about unity. Does that make sense? So, so uh, this selective perception or excuse me, elevating certain sins, selective transformation, is what prevents us then from our own transformation because we're like this. Oh, that sin over there that I don't do, that's what's going to destroy Western civilization. The, the, one, the one that I don't do. So I'm up here, you're down there. Really? No, you're not. That brings me to the third point. Our sickness is what unites us. So let's agree with God that all of us are part of the problem. Now, why do I say that? Because of verse 18. The wrath of God is revealed 
from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. Now, what Paul is saying here in these verses is that God's wrath comes about not because people don't know things about God, but because people do know things about God, and everyone knows certain things about God, even if they've never read a Bible. Everyone knows. What does everyone know? Everyone knows about God's divine character, right? His divine nature, verse 20, has been clearly seen being understood through what? Through creation. Through creation. So everyone knows at some gut, intuitive, deep level that all this beauty, the the fact that I breathe air, the fact that the water that I need for survival is unique among the chemicals in the way that it freezes, all of that stuff, all the life, all the food, all of it is a gift from God that we might enjoy life. And, And here's the thing, people know that. And one of the ways I know that people know that is I run uh, around Green Lake. Well, run is an overstatement. But faster than walk, I make my way around Green Lake. And, uh, and so Wednesday morning when I was around, going around the lake, there's a whole there's a group of, you know, five, six people. And they're all, you know, transfixed on a tree. They're looking at a tree. And I'm like this, what's everybody doing? Well, oh, there's an eagle up there, a bald eagle. Now, you know, just ponder that for a minute. Why does humanity stop and take, you know, iPhone photos of a scavenger bird? Like, why is that? (laughs) Like, what's the deal? Well, here's why. It's beautiful. That's why. And the change of colors. Beautiful. And the first frost. Beautiful. That beauty is intended by God. Romans 2, we'll see next week. Is intended by God to be a gift of kindness. That you might then, through God's kindness, want to worship the one who made it all. And it says here that everyone knows that. And even though everyone knows that, rather than giving thanks, people rejected the author and began worshiping the creation rather than the creator. So people still love creation, but have been cut off from worshiping the one who made it all. That's Romans 1. And then, so that's why God has judgment. We think of judgment as God throwing stuff at us, right? God's mad, and he's throwing thunderbolts or something like that. But here's judgment. Verse 24, 26, 28, there's a phrase that recurs three times. So, by virtue of our collective rejection of God's revelation and God's character and our refusal to worship, here's what happens. It says in verse 24, God gave them up. Uh, Gave them up to the desires of their heart. God gave them up to living autonomously. Verse uh, 26, God gave them up to the end of living autonomously, which is depravity, three times. God gave them up. In other words, watch this. Here's the judgment of God. Oh, you want to live on your own, make your own rules, be captain of your own ship? Here's my judgment. Go, make your own rules. Now, how many of you in the room uh, who are parents have ever done this? Your kid wants to do something, and you know it's a disaster, and you're trying to think, now how can I really discipline my child here? I'll tell you how. Here, go do it. Go do it. That's fine. Yeah. You want to you wanna go to an all-night thing and, and there's 10 cakes of beer there and be with people who have no human judgment capacity at all and, and dance all night and, you know, go. I mean, that's the parable of the prodigal son. It is. Oh, you want the whole inheritance? And you spend it on prostitutes? Fine. Go. 
That's judgment. Do you understand? God isn't throwing thunderbolts. God is letting us live autonomously. And the result of living autonomously is a disaster. And there's a whole laundry list here in verses 26 to 32 of what humanity living autonomously looks like. And this is what it looks like. Moreover, since they consider, the, now I'm reading from the J.B. Phillips paraphrase of the Bible, since, since we consider ourselves too high and mighty to acknowledge God, God allows us to become the slaves of our own degenerate minds and perform unmentionable deeds. We choose death rather than life. We become filled with wickedness and rottenness and greed and malice. And our minds become steeped in envy. Does that sound familiar? Or, or murder or quarrelsomeness or spite. We become gossipers and stabbers in the back and God-haters, and we overflow with pride and boastfulness, and our minds team with diabolical inventions, and we scoff at duty to parents, and we mock learning, and we recognize no obligation to honor, and we lose natural affection, and we have no use for mercy, and more than this, even though we know that God's pronouncement is that all who do such things deserve to die, we not only do them, but we affirm those who do them with us. Boom. That's like a mic drop or something. Like, this is bad news. Do you understand? And, and, and this is the condition of the human heart. So in a world filled with this, like our collective failure to be able to make it work, Christianity is called to stand in the gap and say, no, there's a way to live that works. I mean, we live in a world where we can put a man on the moon, but we can't, we can't solve home, homelessness. We've got enough food to feed the world twice, and thousands of children die every day of starvation. We've got beautiful warm homes, and, and some of us in the room have not only a home but a second and a storage shed for stuff. And there's millions of refugees who have nowhere to, to sleep. Like, how, how is this happening? Well, human depravity, that's how. And so, like, what does that mean for us? We're called collectively by our life together, not by preaching, by our life together. We're called to say, no, wait, there's a, there's a different way to live. There's hope in despair. There's reconciliation in the midst of oppression and injustice. There's enough for everybody in the midst of the 1%. Why? Because of Christ. So it all starts, Romans 1, with our confession. Yeah, we're part of the problem, every one of us in the room. And we need what God can only give. And then, watch this, the fact that Christ is the uniting source is all we need for fellowship. And then I won't agree with Tom on everything. And then in the, in the beauty of the gospel, we'll go head to head knowing this. In spite of the fact that we don't agree, we love Jesus. And now we're participating in the 2,000-year-old project of transformation that is the gospel. Becoming more and more and more like Christ. Why? Because we committed to life together. That's the gospel. Father, as we come to your table now, it's what a beautiful thing that at this table... Uh, we will all partake of your life and not even agree on what we're doing and what it means. Not even agree on uh, what happened Thursday in a Supreme Court hearing. Not, not even agree uh, politically or not even have the same economics or the same family backgrounds, but we have you and that's enough. May it be enough, Father, for you to create a visible testimony of unity in this beautiful yet broken city. And we'll thank you for the adventure that awaits as you, you unite our hearts, praying in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, of the many different sacraments represented in Scripture, 
communion is particularly poignant for both its individual and collective application for us. And yet, typically here at Bethany, we take communion the first Sunday of the month. We've decided to bump that forward given the nature of the outset of this sermon series. On that first Sunday, it can so commonly just be a ritualistic thing that we do. And yet communion is intended to be so much more than that. And I wanted to share with you this morning a recent experience that I had visiting one of our global partners, World Relief in Rwanda, in which I had a profound experience taking communion. As you know, Rwanda is a context that perhaps better than any uh, in recent history embodies this notion of uh, the act of communion and our faith in Christ becoming nothing more than a ritualistic matter or a matter of self-identification. In 1994, Rwanda famously had a genocide in which in less than 30 days, over a million people were slaughtered. And at that very time in Rwanda, it was a predominantly Christian nation. Now, not predominantly in terms of 51% of people being Christian, but over 95% of the population identified as being rooted in a faith intended to unify, and yet profound division persisted. And so in the time that I was in Rwanda, I was blessed to participate with World Relief and their annual staff retreat. And at the end of four days, spending time with one another, trying to wrestle through this issue of what does it mean for us 24 years after the genocide to continue to fight for unity, how is it that we're able to do that? And, and, and beautifully what they identified in the midst of a, a staff that represented both Hutu and Tutsi historically, every denomination in the country, Catholic, Pentecostal, Baptist, Anglican, Seventh-day Adventist, all there in the room together, a staff of about 60 people, which is about the size of our staff here at Bethany. They had pastors representing each one of these denominations come forward and at the end of these four days, administer the elements of communion together. And they said uh, beautifully that it's not um, from their own strength right, that this, this high calling of unity can be realized, but rather only from the strength that comes from Christ. And there was a line that was shared uh, that day that stuck with me, and I want to share it with you here this morning, um, for I believe it's, we have the same call, and that is this. One of the pastors, he looked out at the, the folks in the room, and he said, if we can't do this here, we're never going to be able to do it out there. And for World Relief, their mission is to empower local churches just like ours, and all the different regions of Rwanda to be the source of transformation in their community. And they said, you know what? If we as leaders of this mission cannot do this here, we're never going to be able to do it out there. So Bethany, we, as our local church, if we can't do unity together here within the safety and protection of these walls, openly expressing our faith with one another, we're never going to be able to do it out there. Amen? Amen. 